Hi, I'm Bethany, and I'm on a journey of discovering what loving oneself actually looks like. I want to invite you into my process, hear some of my crazy stories, as well as hear some amazing people with wisdom and insight give their take on what it looks like to love yourself well, and in turn, be able to love people well too. Come on, let's go. Okay. Hey, welcome to the second episode of Like Me, Like You. A lot has happened since the last time I recorded my first and only episode, Uh, so I thought I would get back into it and start making episodes on a regular basis. Um, In between, a lot has happened, a couple holidays as well as a pandemic, a trip to Israel, all kinds of things, Uh, so I decided that it would be something new and exciting um, and also was bombarded by a bunch of friends and family members to get back on and finish what I started. So here we are. Um, I decided that uh, the best thing to do was to tell my stories and to uh, invite everyone in on my thoughts and lessons learned uh, because of all the things that I've experienced, which sounds a little scary or probably more intriguing than it actually is, but maybe you'll like them as much as uh, others do. I was thinking about this pandemic and just uh, the thought of being faced with mortality. I um, work as an essential worker right now, which I don't feel very essential, but I am an essential worker against my will. I'm a manager of a of a local well-known grocery store that um, is exciting and fun and has very uh, unique and yummy products that we sell uh, with our name on it. So I will leave that out, but you could probably get the gist of it. And I realize working during a time like this um, that there are two things for the most part that people need to know. And it's in times of panic and in times of trauma or times of distress, you cannot gauge how people are going to react. You just can't. You can't guess um, what people's response to distress or fear will be. And that's what I find is happening right now in the world is there is a lot of fear. People are in distress. Um, They've also had all of the things that are normal in their life, like the routines, the things that they have control over, like their jobs their income, all of that has simultaneously disappeared. So it's an interesting thing to be a part of, and it's an interesting thing to watch as you see people around you react in so many different ways to something that we all can't have control over. And that brings me to my second thought, which is uh, facing mortality. There is a lot of stuff around a regret, which is so sad. I Before I started working for the company I work for now, I was a funeral director. I went to a college called Worsham School of Mortuary Science in Wheeling, Illinois. I made a bunch of friends that are still friends to this day, and I learned a lot about grieving. I learned a lot of technical things like how to embalm, um, and I also learned a lot of things about mortuary law. And I believe that a lot of life lessons have actually come 
out of my time of being a, a mortician or a funeral director, undertaker, if you will. That's also a, a, another name. Um, that's where a lot of my stories come from, actually. I have quite a few stories. Some are endearing, some are charming, some are not, some are sad, some are, you know, are terrifying as well. Um, but one thing remains is I realized very quickly that, you know, death brings out a few things in people. Sometimes it's the best in 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 people. Their uh, reconciliation and redemption for family issues uh, brings families closer together, and sometimes it does not. Sometimes it brings people apart. It forces people apart. It causes them to uh, hold on to bitterness or blame one another or find a reason to explain away what is happening right now, which is all understandable. And a lot of what I see right now during this COVID pandemic reminds me of my time in funeral service. Um, Death is out of our control. You know, there are a lot of people that would come in the funeral homes. I would, first thing that I would do is after picking up you know, a deceased person from a hospital or a nursing home or a family home or a coroner's office, but bring them back to the funeral home. And I would call the family if I hadn't had a chance to talk to them. And there would be a couple things that I would do. I would find out what type of services they were thinking about having. I would also find out if the family would like uh, the deceased embalmed. And then I would also set up a meeting time to have the family come in and plan services if they so wish to have them. If they didn't wish to have them, there was still some information that I needed, statistical information for the death certificate and some other things uh, that's required by law as well as um, insurance companies. So uh, there was always meeting with someone via phone, via in person, however it may be, there was always meeting with people. And I realized meeting with people, uh, you got to see so many different characters and I got to witness so many people respond to trauma and to distress. Um, I had... I remember having a family member once uh, there, you know, it was, it was not to downplay death, but it was a typical death. It was like, you know, an elderly grandma or grandpa and, you know, all of their children came, you know, all of their, I think it was a couple brothers, a couple sisters, and then the spouses. So there's probably seven or eight people uh, in the meeting room. We were sitting around and there was just this one son. And I think he was the oldest. And in this meeting room was a big table. It was like um, a conference table. So all the family was sitting around, made sure everybody had coffee or tea or something to drink. And I had all of the information that they needed paper-wise in front of them. And then around the room were uh, things on display that, of course, that we sell. So there were you know, pictures of caskets or there were necklaces for memorials or there were urns for cremains, things like that that were on sale uh, and on display for different packages. And this one son kept getting up from the table and like pacing around the room, which is, I've seen it before. Like he obviously does not know what to do with himself. He's just experienced trauma. He's just experienced you know, one of the worst things that could happen to him, he just lost his parent and he wasn't even aware of his own response and of his own reactions. This man is like pacing around like a tiger in a cage. 
and picking up things and putting them down, going and fixing the blinds, checking the doors to see if they were locked, looking at the light switches, looking at the cabinets to make sure if they were sound. He actually knocked on wood at one point to see if it was solid. And I finally decided to ask this man, like, what is, what is it that you do for a living? Just trying to bring up conversation, you know, and he was a contractor. And I thought, okay, so you're doing something that you know well. You're going around and you're making sure that things are sound because that's something you can control and that's something that you can do. Um, there was another time that uh, this older man died. He was kind of a little, a bit of a staple in the community. Uh, it was a smaller town and people kind of knew him well. He was a local businessman, that sort of a thing. And his wife came in and she was probably in her mid to late 70s, very well put together, uh, beautiful makeup and jewelry and matching shoes with her top. And she had a little scarf tied around her neck and it was accented and she sat down and uh, I was looking at the paperwork and I gave my condolences, ma'am, I am so sorry about your loss today. Have you thought about what type of services that you're looking at having? You know, and in the back of my head, I thought, well, I'll get ready because this is going to be big. The whole community knows this man. The whole community, you know, has had contact with him. We've already had calls about him. You know, she's going to make sure that he's celebrated and loved, you know? And I was surprised because she wasn't crying. There was no... Um, reactions to the distress of it that I was used to seeing in, you know, older women who have lost their spouse. Typically, older women are stay-at-home moms. They've lost their spouse. They don't know what they're going to do with themselves. They don't know. They've basically kept a house for years and years and years and have kept a husband happy, and this was no longer the case, you know? Your husband has passed away. Your children have left the nest. It's just you. There is kind of this question of like, well, what am I going to do now? Where am I going to go? What am I going to do next? And I was prepared for that. I was prepared to console her. I was prepared to talk about her options. I was prepared to talk about insurance. I was prepared to talk about the different types of services she wanted to have and visitation times and waiting for her children and what type of... Uh, obituary she wanted in the paper. I was prepared to spend hours and hours and hours of explaining in time with this woman who looked like she kind of had never had to deal with anything financial before in her life. And so back to her, I just looked across the table and I said, I'm so sorry about your loss. Um, I know that he was, you know, uh, a beloved man in the community. And I wasn't sure if you've had time to think about what type of services you've wanted uh, to have for him. And she looked at me straight in the face and she said, honey, he beat me for 50 years. You can throw him in a ditch for all I care. And I about fell out of my chair. I could not believe that A, she told me that and B, that that was her response. I was like, oh my God, what is like, that's crazy. But that's the truth of it. Like she, that was a, a deep, dark secret that no one knew. Probably maybe a few people knew, but for the most part on the outside, they looked very well put together. They He was beloved by everyone in the community. You know, she looked very wealthy. You could see, you could see it on her. You could see how well put together she was, her jewelry, um, how she matched everything. Her hair was impeccable. Her makeup was impeccable. Her vehicle was new. Like all of the things that just kind of give us subliminal messages that somebody has it together. And um, no, she was living a life of horror. And 
I just realized like, oh, I actually can't look at someone and say, I know how they'll react. I know what they'll do because you don't, you just, you don't know what you're going to do. I remember, uh, in 2013, yeah, 2013, I was living in Washington, Illinois. I had graduated from mortuary school and I was doing an apprenticeship. So as a funeral director, one of the things that you have to do before you become licensed by the state in which you are working in, you have to uh, go through an apprenticeship. So many states across the country are different. They have their own rules. They have their own set of standards. I It was in Illinois at the time, and what they required was 12 months as an apprentice under a licensed funeral director, and I had paperwork that I had to fill out. I had to do so many embalmings. I had to do so many services, and my boss had to sign off, and I had I had a basically like a sponsor or a counselor that worked for the state, and he was the one I answered to. He was the one I sent the paperwork to, and at the end of my 12 months, I went from having an apprentice license to having an actual funeral director's license, um, and I was in Washington, Illinois, under a funeral home there, and I was working as an apprentice, and uh, it was like the week before Thanksgiving. I was driving a Volkswagen Beetle convertible, and <laughs> and uh, which is just nuts. And it was a week before Thanksgiving, so it should be cold. It should be, you know, your typical fall up north type of a day. And it was a Sunday morning, and I had to get ready to do a service. And I was working with a funeral director named Laura. And I thought, well, I'll get up. I'll have a shower. And I was showering and getting ready, and I heard um, tornado sirens go off which is nuts because it's not tornado season. We're kind of, I don't think in tornado alley, like there's a chance of it happening, but not really. But unfortunately, tornado sirens were something of a normalcy for some reason. It was a sound that they tested once a month um, and things like that. So it's not that I'd never heard of it. It wasn't totally alarming to me. I remember having the thought, huh, that's weird. Uh, the tornado sirens are going off. And that's what I thought. I didn't think like, oh my gosh, like a tornado. I, I had no thoughts of that. I actually thought, I wonder why they're, they're playing the sirens. This is so weird. I finished getting ready to go to a funeral, hop in my car and start to drive to the funeral home, get ready for a service. So I'm on my way and I'm parked at a red light. I'm waiting to turn onto a main road. I'm in the left turning lane at a red light. And I look to the left of me and I see that the sky is completely bruised. It looks like a churning sea of green and purple and black. I have never seen that before and thought it was so odd that I took my phone out to take a picture of it to send it to my dad because he's like me and he would think that that was totally crazy. So I'm at this red light, I take my phone out, I go to take a picture of the sky, and all of a sudden, this man in a truck comes squealing toward me. I mean, I thought he was going to hit me. He pulls in front of me and slams on his brake and rolls down the window, and my thought was, oh my God, this guy is going to yell at me for having my phone out while I'm in the car. Illinois has very strict phone, like mobile phone rules in your car of like you, it has to be completely wireless and stuff like that. So here I was sitting at a red light, thought I could sneak a photo, thought I was going to get yelled at. 
I roll down my window and this man panic screams at me, run, that's a tornado, run. And I laughed hysterically, like, like a crazy person laugh, like a, like a witch on a broom type of laugh. And I couldn't believe that that was my reaction to what was going on. And it was because I was panicked. It was not a laugh in the face of danger. It was like, I actually don't know what I'm going to do. And it put me into survival mode. And the first thing I did was hysterically laugh. So at a red light, I kick my car into gear and I decide to go right instead of left. And I'm on this main road going down this city. And what I didn't know was that this like F5 tornado was barreling behind me, directly toward me. And I am driving down the road. Remember, I'm in a Volkswagen Beetle convertible, a soft top, and the top is up. And um, I get so panicked that I actually pull off onto the side of the road because the rain is now so severe, it's raining sideways and I can't see. I can no longer see anymore. And um, I get a phone call from Laura at the funeral home and Laura said, hey, like, where are you at? And I said, I'm on the road and I can't see. It's raining. It's like raining so bad I can't see. And she goes, well, just pull over. Like, and I said, I, I'm pulled over. And she goes, yeah, just wait it out. Stay till the rain. I'm just making sure you're okay. And I hung up with her and a, I heard a voice in my head say, you need to drive now. And I thought, I, I can't see like, you know, that was, I was like trying to convince this thought, this voice in my head of the non-logic of being in a tornado and I'm in the thick of rain and I can't see, but my survival mode kicks over, something kicks over and I knew I needed to listen and I kicked it in gear and I was flying down this main road. And what was so crazy was I couldn't see, I could, I had no wherewithal to understand of like seek shelter. Like all the stuff that you say, like, oh, if I were in a tornado or if I were in a hurricane, this is what I would do. All of that gets flushed down the toilet. No, you won't. Unless you practice it every day, unless you are a doomsday prepper or a fireman or something, you have no idea actually how you're going to respond to something like that. So here I am barreling down the road and I'm looking from my, my left to my right for some place to pull into, like some place to go. I had no idea where I was going to go. And lo and behold, I was driving and I could see a Hardee's uh, to my right. And I thought, okay, uh, I'm going to pull into the Hardee's. And the Hardee's was one of those like redone Hardee's where the whole seating area is just glass. You know what I mean? Like everything is glass, including the doors and the whole area that you sit in and eat. So I pull into this Hardee's and I get this overwhelming feeling that it's safer in here. Don't get out of the car. Like, don't get out of your car. It's safer in here. You're going to be fine. It's scary outside. Don't get outside. Don't go outside. And I thought, yeah, that, that makes sense. I'm just going to sit in here. I now can see that it's hailing, that things, you know, all of the signs are shaking and the the lights at the stoplights are going wild. Like things are happening. And I muster up all the strength I have because I just know that's not right. And I get out of my car and I go to try to find the door at the Hardee's. What I realize is that I can't tell where the door is because it's so violent outside. I can't see anything. So everything's blurred together. So I started to take my hands. I'm in a suit. I'm in a dress suit and heels. Okay. And I'm outside in a tornado 
patting down, up and down, the glass to try to find the door because I can't see it. So I'm trying to feel it. And the next thing I know, I feel someone grab the collar of my jacket and pull me inside. And it went from noise and rain and screeching and squealing to total and utter silence. And I'm standing in Hardee's with about five other people and a couple workers. And we, we all simultaneously watch this tornado barrel down the road and then take a, take a left. And it picks up everything. It picked up a like Shell gas station and put it in the middle of the road. Like it totally destroyed everything in its path. My car was one of the only vehicles left in the parking lot. And everyone is stunned. Everyone is just beside themselves, stunned, can't believe what's going on, can't believe what's happening. And my reaction to that, because my reactions have been so good so far, my reaction to that is I looked at the Hardy work, like the Hardy's worker, and I said, okay, thanks. I got to go to work. And then I proceed to go outside, get back in my car and try to drive through the rubble to get to work. And it takes my brain probably a good five minutes after realizing I can't get anywhere without running into rubble that this isn't normal and this is not okay. So I start, I can, I can feel myself like it was like my brain was catching up with what I was seeing. And I went from being like, okay, okay. Oh my God. Oh my God. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. And it was this like buildup of panic. Like there's this crazy buildup of panic. And I can remember realizing I actually can't get back. I can't get back to where I was supposed to be. I don't even know if my apartment is still standing. I don't know anything. So I tried to go down a road that I couldn't. There was a house. There was like a house in the road. There were cars in the road. Um, the most eerie thing I saw and that I remember were the trees. Uh, it looked like the trees were just stripped. Like it was the most eerie, bizarre thing I could think of. It reminded me of pictures that I saw in like World War One and World War Two of like places that were bombed and there was nothing left but like these tree trunks. Like that's what it reminded me of. So I finally get back to my apartment. I'm about to lose signal. I call my mom and all I can utter is, hey, mom, I'm alive. But there was a tornado and everything shut off. And for the next couple hours, it was just wild. It was like one thing after the other. And what I realized during that time is that I couldn't predict how I was going to react because I've never been in a situation like that before. So I did take some photos because I was in so much shock of what happened. I couldn't believe what I was seeing. And I got home and I realized that my nothing worked. My, my cell phones didn't work. I had a, a business cell phone and I had a personal cell phone and neither one of them worked. I had um, an apartment and I lived alone and I can remember going inside and just being like, I, it's going to be dark and I need to charge my phone. And the only way to charge my phone is to sit in the car. So I can remember sitting in the car and I kept getting like notifications and the notifications were from Facebook and from, I think, uh, it was text messages as well. So Facebook text messages and emails were all coming through on both of my phones and I could see them, but I couldn't respond. 
And I remember the feeling of just helplessness. I had moved to this town. I didn't know anyone. I moved there by myself. Here I was in this disaster that I couldn't get, I couldn't leave now. I was stuck there. And there was no way for me to even let anyone know that I was okay. I did get that through to my mom before everything went down. And I was like message after message after message. And it was like, please tell me you're okay. Can you respond to this text? Can you please give me a call? I need to know you're all right. Are you alive? And it was just one thing after the other after the other. And I remember just sitting there defeated. And I started to cry because all I could think of was here I am and I'm okay. But no one who loves me knows. No one has any idea that I'm okay because I can't get through. And finally... I somehow got a hold of Laura working at the funeral home uh, who by then knew that it was a tornado and that it destroyed everything. And she messaged me and said, hey, girl, why don't you come and stay with me? She was in the town over. She was in Peoria, Illinois. She said, if you need a place to stay, come and stay with me. And I thought, yeah, that'll be a good idea. I'm going to do that. So I go back in my house and I realize I need to pack a bag for a couple days and I'm going to work. So I decided to just quickly pack a bag. I put it in my car and I left. And when you believe, by the time I got to Laura, um, I got inside. We chatted for a bit. I told her about my experience. And I go into the room to put on something comfortable. And I realized I packed a bag of pants. That's all I did. Like, I was in so much shock of what was going on. And I didn't give my ch- myself, like, a chance to think about anything. I packed a bag of pants. That's, that was my, that was my like clear logic that goes to show you where I'm at. So basically, um, I used that story to talk to people in funeral service. You know, I remember a woman being so angry, her, her 30 year old grandson had overdosed in their basement and I was meeting with them. I met with a lot of families like that. I don't know if it was because I was a woman or I had more like, you know, women seem to have more compassion or or what the deal was, but I was just meeting with his mom and meeting with his grandmother, and they didn't have anything. They didn't have much. They didn't have money set aside for him. He wasn't employed. He didn't have, like, life insurance. He didn't have much to his name, and they were faced with now having to bury him, and I unfortunately gave them the bad news of, okay, this is these are this this is the option these are the options for you and unfortunately it wasn't what they had hoped and um, I can remember going to bat for them they didn't know but I went I went to bat for them I went to my boss who was very kind and I was able to get them all of these free services and didn't charge them for anything but they didn't know that all they knew was that I was telling them that they couldn't honor their son and their grandson the way that they wanted and I remember sitting back down to give them the good news that I had gone to bat And the grandmother looked at me and she said, how can you live with yourself? How can you do this? You're in the wrong profession. You know, and she berated me. She just called me every name in the book. And the only way that I could respond is I said, I'm so sorry you feel that way. I am so sorry you feel that way. I'm so sorry that you feel that way. And she had hot tears running down her face. And I wasn't even able to give them the good news. She got up and she left. And I was able after that, her, you know, her, her daughter apologized and said, I'm so sorry, my mother's not like that. She's just really stressed out right now. We don't know what we're going to do. And I was able to give the daughter the good news of, hey, this is what we're going to do for you. Um, we're not going to charge you the things that you, you know, I, I was able to go to my boss and this was what I was able to work out for you. And she wept and hugged me and we were able to have a service. And I can remember the day of the service, um, the grandmother came up to me 
And uh, she said, I have to apologize. I am, I am so sorry. You know, and she apologized. And I told her a very short version of the tornado version. And I said, ma'am, I know that when we are in trauma and we were in shock and we are in distress, we don't act ourselves. We don't act like us. And I don't hold it against you. And I don't, I forgive you. You don't have to worry about that. And she wept, you know, and that kind of stuff has always stuck with me. So now being in a job as an essential worker in customer service, no less, people are coming in the store every day. They are disgruntled. They are angry. They've lost their jobs. They don't have control anymore. Their kids are not in school. They didn't graduate. You know, all of the things that are piling up right now due to this COVID pandemic. But if you could be so kind as to remember that people in times of trauma don't act themselves. We cannot guarantee the response of people to something like this. So let's have mercy and let's have grace on one another. This is me speaking to myself as much as to anyone else. We can all get very tired. We can all um, get short. We can all forget what other people are going through. But remember, um, something that my dad says is that there is always hope. As long as there is breath, there is hope. And that's what I think about today is in a time like this, just remember, as long as there is breath, there is hope. And there is hope that this will end and it will end soon. So I just want to leave you with that and a couple a couple little crazy stories from my little file of things that have happened to me along the way. Thanks so much for listening. I'm so glad that I have people who love me that want to hear me tell my craziness and uh, listen to the little nuggets of uh, wisdom I've learned along the way. So hopefully there's going to be another episode and I would love for you to click back and subscribe to this and share it if you will. And we'll talk to you next week. Thanks for listening to Like Me, Like You.